Hey everyone, thanks for joining this episode of Soundbites. We have a really, really great guest today, um, Byron Bennett, who's CEO of Zergatran. We just learned that stands for Zero Gravity Transportation, which is pretty awesome. We'll dig into that in a little bit. Really fascinating story that starts in the finance industry. Well, starts ahead of that, but goes into the finance industry, goes through fintech, education tech, uh, hospitalities, and now reimagining, revolutionizing the way the global supply chain works. Most ambitious project he's had yet. Well, really excited to have you on today. I'm really excited to hear your story. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me on. Been listening to your podcast and I love them. Thanks. Really appreciate it. So hit us with the background. What, what set you on the path to get to where you are right now? Oh, gosh. Um, my path as an entrepreneur uh, kind of started uh, back in high school. Uh, essentially, I was doing a uh, City of Philadelphia-sponsored internship, and I was introduced to a Young Entrepreneurs program that was being started uh, at the Wharton School. Uh, essentially, Michael Milken had donated $5 million to create the Wharton West Philadelphia Project. And out of that project, they taught the Young Entrepreneurs at Wharton program. Uh, a company by the name of the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship was hired to uh, teach the classes. Uh, they've now built into a multi-million dollar foundation um, and are doing really well internationally. But that's how I got my start. Through that mm. summer program, I started my first company, which was a promotional supply company, just putting like uh, logos and branding on everything from T-shirts to mugs, pens, uh, you name it. And... Um, yeah, that's how I got my start. Now, the following summer, I end up uh, also doing a, another uh, summer program at the Wharton School, um, the Pennsylvania Governor's School for Business. Mm -hmm. So logically, after those two programs, I end up going to Wharton. And then after Wharton, I moved to New York, started in finance or worked in finance as I worked with uh, on my businesses on the side. Uh, so my background is in uh, financial analysis, um, uh, credit analysis, and uh, lots of different entrepreneurial projects, kind of just jump around. Uh, so that's how I got my start. And what brought me to where we are now is a uh, <laughs> interesting story is all stories are interesting, um, essentially. Married my wife about six years ago and five years ago when she wanted to go back to Colombia, I started looking at what I can do in Colombia. And that's when I focused uh, on this bottleneck and on this space. And we'll get into that in a second. But the irony is I started it project because of uh, her. Um, but this year has been so difficult and uh, I'm fully committed to this project and to Colombia, and I now have three Colombian kids. So I'm going to persevere and just continue on with this project. But that's uh, how I got onto this path and how I hmm. got to where I am now with this project. Now, in terms of, I'll pause for a second. No, Did that's, it's a fascinating story. And we were talking with you earlier, like through the last couple of, um, conversations. It's been fascinating to hear your path through going to college, through coming to New York, through starting businesses in New York. And 
being able to recognize opportunity all along the way, right? I feel like you're through your story, we keep seeing this theme of you being able to recognize interesting opportunities. And when we, we heard about this business you were forming, it was like, man, it was fascinating. And it was timely because we kept seeing all the bottlenecks that were taking place um, at the Panama Canal, right? We kept seeing these huge bottlenecks at the Panama Canal and we were like, man, that's, that's a fascinating problem. And then when we learned that you were solving it or working towards solving that issue, we were like, this is fascinating. We got to hear more of this story. And let's talk about your time in New York. So when you were in New York, you recognized a few opportunities inside your own neighborhood, right? Like you were looking at various hospitalities, things that were missing in your neighborhood that you wanted to see and created them, right? Yeah. Um, as you said, most of my businesses have been uh, revolved around recognizing opportunities and they've been around organizing things so that things work better and make people happier. In this particular case, we're looking at the entire global um, supply chain and mm. looking at how we can address some of the bottlenecks and make it uh, better. Now, some of the projects that I did in New York, um, like uh, a wine store in the East Village, was because at the time when we lived there, the East Village didn't have a luxury wine store. Hmm. Uh, we had to go all the way across the East Village to get over to Broadway <laughs> uh, to find like Union Square wines and warehouse yeah. wines and stuff like that. That may so, as well yeah. be New Jersey, right? That's... Exactly. Across the bridge, it was so far to walk those five blocks. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how it led to opening up the first luxury wine store in the East Village. And a part of that, we built a system of touchscreen kiosks so you can just scan a bottle of wine to pull up the information for that wine uh, or to pair it with foods. And you can do it vice versa. So that... Um, an interesting story about that is because it was the first in the East Village and how New York law is set up, you have to apply uh, for a liquor license and mm -hmm. they let your three closest competitors know or they ask them, well, do you want this competitor? And of course, they're all going to say no. Yeah. Yeah. So we end up having to um, uh, put out a petition to the neighborhood. And we are still to the day um, on record as having the most petitions in the state of New York for a liquor license. Over a thousand people in the East Village uh, signed our petition because we needed a good upscale liquor store. Now the things have changed and there's more stores and um, more of the shop uh, supermarkets and stuff sell more wine. So. The mix has changed a little bit, but at the time we needed uh, uh, an upscale liquor store. Sure. Uh, similarly, I uh, ended up starting a, a one-stop shop for gourmet chocolate. Again, it was just way too far to go to Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue to get your gourmet chocolate. So created a one-stop shop called the Chocolate Library, where you can just come in and get a selection of just primarily uh, chocolate bars from the different chocolatiers. Um, so yeah, uh, all of the businesses have been around 
recognizing opportunity, uh, um, seeing how we can organize things and make things better, and seeing how we can make people happier. Um, one of the things I learned through the chocolate business, for example, is that a lot of women um, keep chocolate on them uh, most of the time, <laughs> have some chocolate or something in their purse. Like, you know, people keep Advil on them just in case they get a headache. We exactly. need chocolate. These were sad. You know, they'll pick me up. Yeah. Well, uh, different strokes for different folks, right? You got your mm -hmm. coffee, you got your chocolate, you got mm -hmm. your cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what, I, it's interesting, you've talked about, you know, your upbringing as a high schooler, kind of starting this entrepreneurial journey, but I do want to acknowledge that, you know, what you were just talking about a few minutes ago, you were really vulnerable in sort of mentioning the other side of entrepreneurship, where it's like, there are super high highs and it's exciting to start businesses, but there are also like some hard parts to it that I don't really think get a lot of, um, attention or discussion so really appreciate you being vulnerable and maybe yeah it's hard that's the thing most people don't realize how difficult it is uh to be an entrepreneur and how challenging it is yeah look um i mentioned uh the national foundation for teaching entrepreneurship which was started by uh steve uh, mariotti and Steve says that what he loves about me the most, and I talked to him a few weeks ago, um, is that I'm tenacious and I have this never give up attitude. And pretty much at the end of the day, I found that's just all you need to be an entrepreneur mm -hmm. because uh, you got to deal with the hills and valleys every day and how you deal with them and how long you're willing to deal for, with them for determines your success. Um, most entrepreneurs struggle to get funding and have a lot of issues because of that. Um, but there's a lot of people that have a lot of funding that still struggle because mm -hmm. it's still dealing with the emotional roller coaster of the business. And a lot of them uh, that start with the money don't really understand what it is to have to budget um, and to deal with creditors and the lack of funds. Uh, no matter what business it is, if you're fully funding this week, you're probably not going to be fully funded next week or the next month because that's the nature of business. So yeah, it, it is tough and most people don't recognize the emotional toll uh, it takes on entrepreneurs and how much they have to sacrifice uh, for their families mm -hmm. and deal with. One of the things that uh, um, I, I, I tell people is that your team and your company, it, it's, it's, it's a part of you. It's a part of your, your family. And like just an example of during COVID, uh, your employees and their situation pretty much went from outhouse to in-house. It's oh, yeah. like you're dealing with every aspect uh, of their lives as they're dealing with every aspect of yours. Yeah. Um, I got caught in a situation uh, where my wife and my son at the time 
were in Colombia. And I was planning to go back to Colombia to join them. Well, I arrived in Cartagena the day after they closed the borders. So they literally put me on a plane several hours later back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that was like six months plus uh, without my family and them being stuck in an apartment, unable to go out. And thank God for Rappi, which delivered food and uh, stuff to them. But because my son was two years old at the time, they couldn't leave uh, the apartment. So, yeah, as I was dealing with a lot of the things for my team, they were also dealing with the fact, uh, all the things that I had to go through uh, Mm -hmm. to keep uh, focused uh, on the business and moving things forward. So, yeah, it's not an area that gets a lot of attention. Um, Most uh, entrepreneurs could probably use psychological counseling. Uh, Most won't admit it, but I'm sure that most could. (laughs) I would would have to agree with that. And it's like Lauren and I have joked about this. You you ride this roller coaster of thinking, you know, inside of the same day, even like I'm Elon Musk. And it's like, I'm Elizabeth Holmes. Like you just ride that wave up and down basically all day. And at the end of the day, there's such a human element to it. You know, your, your family, your team, you, you have all these inputs and nobody is completely, you know, impervious to that, right? You're, you're going to experience, you're going to feel, you're going to have moments where you take the wrong thing out on the wrong person. That just happens. You're going to feel the ups, you're going to feel the downs. And it's, um, it's a, it's a ride. It's a difficult ride. And when you work in corporate America, all that risk is still there, but it's abstracted to you as an employee. Yeah. You know, like I think all of it's there. You just don't see it. But as soon as that layer is removed, you get to see and feel and experience all of it. And it's, um, it's not smooth. We were talking with, uh, I think it was Kurt. I think it was Kurt where one of our other guests. The, yeah. yeah. The, the image of the entrepreneur with a stack of money jumping on a private jet is the <laughs> furthest thing from the truth in reality. Right. And if you actually did that, your investors would immediately claw back their investment or they wouldn't release a tranche. Yeah. We, uh, we saw a very recent example. I won't dig into too many details, but there was a, um, a company we know they were flying to their investor to get more cash and they chose to take a private flight to do that. And their investor decided that they weren't utilizing their capital effectively. And yeah. It was all over. Right. It's, it's um, the other thing that people, I think a lot of people don't realize about finance is when you do get funded, you don't have the expectation isn't that you put that in the bank and I dropper it out. It's that you are deploying that actively yeah. to produce value. So you are constantly deploying and raising, deploying and raising. And it's a, yeah. it's a difficult emotional roller coaster to be on. That, yeah, um, I can literally tell you if I got all of our funding in now, it will be deployed tomorrow. Because <laughs> sure. the project you're working on is extremely ambitious, right? When um, in the intro we talked through, um, gosh, it's been in the news quite a bit over the last month, so this is timely, the traffic jam that is the Panama Canal. And then if you flash back, what is it, a year or two ago? Maybe it's not even that long ago. The, uh, the Suarez Canal, the Suarez Canal. Um, Suez, yeah. Suez Canal, where the, the ship turned sideways and blocked all global trade for a long period of time, you know, trillions of dollars of trade. Yeah. 
the fragility of the current supply chain is completely abstracted to most people. They don't realize it. And you're looking at a solution that could add robustness and another option to that. Yeah. Um, Where to start with that? But with regards to our overall supply chain, yes, it is fragile. And there are some things that we take for granted, like the Suez Canal and ships being always able to pass it. The Panama Canal is a miracle, and we take for granted now that it's there. But there are some major points in our system where if there's issues, it drops our entire system significantly. Uh, like the, the name of uh, the Evergiven getting stuck in the Suez Canal, that affected a third of the goods to Europe. Uh, So literally, we were asked to join the EU tech chamber because they saw our solution. And granted, 70% of the goods that go through the Panama Canal are between uh, the U.S. And we'll Mm -hmm. get back to that. Uh, A a lot of the traffic is to Europe. And when they're noticing this direct effect on goods coming to Europe, they're like, okay, okay. We need solutions. Now, um, the Panama Canal, which we're building an alternative to, uh, to increase the flow across Central America, is experiencing significant drought issues, which has reduced capacity by about 20%. Now, the pandemic uh, highlighted the, the issues in our system and, our, and the bottlenecks. Uh, and we saw that congestion is parking lots um, that people had never really thought about before. It's like, okay, I just ordered something from Amazon. It comes to us in X amount of days. And oh my God, they got it here in six hours. How is that possible? Um, That's our normal life. But then people started seeing those parking lots of congestion. And the thing is, that congestion didn't reduce the capacity at the Panama Canal. But what's going on is that uh, climate change and uh, the issues with um, uh, the water supply uh, at the man-made lake, most people don't realize that the canal is uh, largely driven by fresh water. <laughs> you got two oceans on the side of it, but you need fresh water uh, to operate it. Go figure. I didn't know, um, I didn't know that. That's, that's wild. Yeah, um, but because of these uh, issues with the the water supply, capacity is down 20%. The pandemic didn't affect capacity, but this is. And depending on your views on long-term trends, every year that passes, this is going to become more and more of an issue. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about just the U.S. focused here for a moment, uh, 70% of the flow through the canal is between the U.S. So we're talking a direct effect on imports and exports. And if you look at that going five years out, what is the effect going to be five years from now uh, as there continues to be more uh, climate-related issues? 
as we continue to see more growth uh, in trade volume, as we can see, continue to see more uh, issues at Los Angeles, uh, Long Beach, where over 40% of our goods come in, what is going to be the effect in, in five years? And our proposition is that, one, uh, growth in trade volume has just skyrocketed to the point where it's highlighted that our system was built in piecemeal and that we need to envision it as one global system and we need to address uh, the largest bottlenecks and issues. The largest at the moment is at the Panama Canal because there's always a two to 12 day wait and the cargo ships tend to have to wait the 10 to 12 days uh, just because it's just massive getting them through. Um, so, Sorry, I lost my train of thought for one second there. No um, problem. No, but it's fascinating, the the volume that's going through the Panama Canal, the fact that there's so much volume that moves through that small little piece of the world yeah. in that people, these cargo ships are, are sitting there idling. They make their journey and then they have to sit there in queue. It's it's not like when you go to Disney and you're there for an hour. You're, you're there for two weeks, right? Sitting there, waiting not making yeah. progress with goods. Yeah, yeah, it depends. And so now the shippers uh, have to say, okay, well, if it's going to be in queue for longer than 10 days, then I have to sh choose another route. Or if I don't know exactly what's going on there, then I have to choose something that's more certain. So right now they're routing the shipments uh, uh, through the longer routes. And that's not because they want to, it's because they have to, and they have to uh, protect the stability, stability of the supply chain uh, and the flow of goods to their partners. Um, yeah. When so, we were in yeah, that corporate America moving, like we had a lot of consumer electronics, a lot of our stuff was, was coming from China. And you're looking at six weeks on the water and sometimes eight weeks because some things would come through like Norfolk, Virginia was one of the ports we'd pull things in and out of. But it got to the point where it started to make sense to have a West Coast warehouse so we could get things off of ships faster, not send it through the Panama Canal and um, distribute, at least have product available on grand, uh, the land to distribute. I think most people finally got a taste of that when they couldn't get toilet paper. <laughs> right. They started looking at the, the fragility yeah. of the supply chain and no one had thought about it before, to your point. Oh, like you need a USB drive. It can be to your house in six hours from your local Amazon warehouse or yeah. you know, Best Buy can drop ship it to you. And so the ability for people to get ready access to anything they need, that's pretty modern. That's a modern problem, a modern thing. But now we're looking at how do you make sure those those stockpiles of goods, those flows of goods are continue to be uh, stable and sustainable, um, especially considering not only the, the constraints that are in the supply chain, but the environmental impact it has sending things on ships all over the planet, right? So how do we optimize that? And the solution y'all are looking at is instead of sending more boats, more volume through that canal, send the goods parallel to it effectively without being. Yeah. Yeah. 
in 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 the end, um, it's about maximizing maximizing the usage of shorter routes because the longer routes are the ones that are creating the issues. Our proposition in short is that it'll take three realignment or distribution centers globally uh, to allow our system to operate more efficiently and Mm -hmm. explain for one second. Now, our alternative to the Panama Canal that we're building is two ports connected by a tunnel so that we can transfer at least five times more containers across, right? Mm-hmm. But a large part of our service is going to be inventory realignment um, so that goods get to their destinations faster. There's only so many ships. There's only so many routes. Um, for example, if you can imagine five, ten uh, smaller ships that are servicing the west coast of South America, the Pacific side, they come up to our facility. Their goods are loaded on larger vessels, either going back to Asia or going up to Los Angeles, Long Beach. Now we're talking about a game-changing situation where uh, you have goods being transferred more efficiently and going to their final destination more directly. Uh, And the other part of that is a lot of the ships that make the long hauls to the U.S. East Coast, uh, Europe, etc., they go back to Asia 75% empty. Mm-hmm. So our proposition is three realignment centers around the world, one um, uh, in northern Colombia, one uh, in the Middle East close to the Suez, mm-hmm. and another one in Southeast Asia will allow us to reroute container traffic uh, and goods better. Um, so that's our proposition for the entire system. And as far as uh, for the first facility uh, in northern Colombia, uh, yeah, it's about the flow of goods across, but it's also about acting as that realignment and distribution center uh, so that goods could flow to their destinations faster. That's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, it's so interesting. If you're, if you're shipping vehicles and they're coming from Europe, you're, you're getting the latest Volkswagen vehicles, you can drop the East Coast stuff off in Norfolk, Virginia, or you can put, um, there's a port in Georgia that a lot of things get dropped off to. But they're not taking those vehicles off there, putting them on a train and sending them to California and Oregon and Washington. Those vehicles are continuing on through the path. So finding better, more effective means to being it or to transporting product greener, more effectively, more efficiently, faster, and fortifying the supply chain while that's happening. Back to the the canal, um, the Suez Canal, one boat stopped international trade. You know, like the, <laughs> yeah. people don't understand the fragility of that, right? We, we think of everything as being redu- robust or having redundancies, but literally like one boat turned a little sideways and it was over. Yeah. How long How long did that ordeal last for? It was a couple weeks, weeks. right? Yeah. yeah. And see, this is the thing. And one of those things I'm asked not to highlight too much <laughs> is that we have over 40% of our goods coming into uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach. Any sort of event or incident mm-hmm. there 
completely shuts down the U.S. economy. Yeah. Ten yeah. times worse than the effect uh, that Pearl Harbor had. Uh, yeah. You know? Um, so it's concerning and some redundancy and additional pass and further distribution uh, of imports uh, is necessary, not just because of economic growth, uh, but for strategic reasons as well. It's like anybody and their mother can get a small micro nuke these days. Yes. <laughs> and containers are, are not scanned when they come into the country uh, yeah. for the most part. So you can pretty much have one of those like uh, Hollywood movie scenarios where there's a million robot troops in the middle of the country sitting in containers and nobody would know about it. Yeah, it's because <laughs> they're audited, right? Like you, you audit one in X of them, but it's impossible to go through each one individually to be able to determine. And to your point, I think people think about water supply. They think about um, electrical grid as being the big pieces of infrastructure that we need to maintain a civilization. And they somehow forget that the logistics in the shipping world is a massive piece of it until you, you don't have toilet paper, right? Like it doesn't impact you until, but that's like the minor piece of it. But it's definitely a fascinating problem to solve. It's an ambitious problem to solve. And for you, you recognizing the opportunity puts you in a place where you have to put so many puzzle pieces together. You're working with um, financing. You're working with probably government agencies and places outside of the United States, right? So it's not the same yeah. as contact your local senator um, for state senate, contact your national senator and work to see what we can do for a solution. You're working with international governments to try and create solutions to big international problems. Yeah. What were some like unexpected challenges you've hit along the way? And how oh gosh. It's, it's, it's literally that what Derek was just mentioning is that it's so much more than a business. Uh, it's massive international. Look, you have over 150 countries that, send goods through the Panama Canal. So, and as you start multiplying that out, you start just seeing the number of stakeholders and um, and people that are interested in what happens uh, in this region. Mm -hmm. So that has been the largest thing. Um, pretty much when we talk to people about the project, four years ago, people didn't really understand why we were pushing the fact that oh, we need better roads. We, we sure. need, need better subways. We need better uh, transportation infrastructure. Now it's the focus. You have the $1.2 trillion uh, infrastructure spending bill. Have most countries around the world now looking at infrastructures because they understand as from the Roman example, when you lose your infrastructure, when you lose your ability to feed and pay your uh, armies or workers, then you're going to have problems. So there's a much more focus uh, on it now. But prior to the pandemic, people didn't really understand. But now when I talk to people about the problems, they get it. Our solution, they get it but they want to see a couple things. They want to see um, uh, us complete our pre-feasibility studies uh, and 
they want to see that we have backing from Colombia, backing mm-hmm. from the U.S., and international support because it affects so many countries. Right. So that has been uh, the most uh, surprising part, Lauren, the mm-hmm. issue that we've had to dealt deal with that we weren't really expecting. From a business perspective, uh, you put together your models and you budget out how long it's going to take you, but there's just these other stuff that you can't budget for and figuring out who's the right agency and people that you need to talk to to get clearance to move forward with a project like this um, is not obvious and it's not easy. And I'm not even sure if I've completely figured it out yet. Uh, I know that um, if you look at um, uh, the groups that follow us, uh, you'll see the chief investment officers for the World Bank, the IMF, Development Finance Corporation. You'll see people from uh, U.S. Trade Development, U.S. Aid. So we're we're talking to all of them, ambassadors, because we need to. Yeah. But there's still no clear answer as who's the right person to clear this project maker. in Colombia. Uh, now we understand that there's. Uh, you mentioned uh, going to your senator and say, uh, help us approve this. Ironically, we're now in that situation as well because we applied for a grant. Uh, just rolling back a second. Sure. Uh, I started saying that everyone we talked to was interested in funding this project after pre-feasibility. All the shipping companies, all the infrastructure investors, all the sovereign wealth funds, Um but no one will fund pre-feasibility because they uh, want to and are used to doing it uh, after pre-feasibility. Sure. Um, But they also want to know that we have those hurdles cleared and we have those clearances. Um, But so so pre-feasibility has been a challenge and that's where we are raising funding uh, to complete pre-feasibility now that everyone understands this uh, problem and our solution. But even in that, we're having a challenge. So we've applied for a grant through USA, uh, through TDA. Uh, We're asking Development Finance uh, Corp for help. But uh, what we were told recently is that regarding Columbia and this project, um, who we need to speak to is one, the ambassador to Colombia, okay. and two, our senators. Um, and our yeah. senators happen to be uh, Marco Rubio and Chris Scott. From what I understand, I guess Rubio is now head of the intelligence committee, but Scott deals with more like infrastructure ports and things like that. So we're asking one of our advisors, uh, Laura Davila, she was the Secretary of Commerce for the state of Florida. She just stepped out. Uh, she's still in charge of the Enterprise Florida, et cetera. So she's going to try and speak with Scott on our behalf because we're told that, I guess, uh, senators control a lot of the purse strings for sure aid, uh, USTDA, uh, et cetera. So in the end, yeah, we are going to our senators asking for help. I don't think people realize, I think people 
especially in the United States, a lot of people think the president has more power than the president has, and they underestimate the amount of power that local governments have and that your senators have, right? Yeah. They're controlling massive budgets that impact huge pieces of your life. Um, yeah, so so vote for the people you, you really align with, right? On yeah. the local level and your senator level. More important than who sits in the office, uh, the yeah. president's office, oddly enough. But no, that's, that's a fascinating problem to try to solve. The bureaucrats don't change. The politicians do. Yeah, exactly right. Like those institutions, those uh, what they represent, it's all the same. The faces just get churned out of it. The, the, the figurehead that's there. But yeah, what what you're working on is amazingly ambitious. It's a problem that needs to be solved, and knocking down all the all the walls to achieve it will yield a really really amazing solution. And I'm glad that someone like you is persevering. A few of the things that you didn't mention, you talked about perseverance, you talked about overcoming a lot. We won't dive into it too deeply, but you've experienced needing to persevere from almost day one, right? I think one part that you skipped over was (laughs) where you initially came from and how you arrived in the United States is a case study in enduring. Yeah. um, I'm your typical zero generation American that believes that if you just bust your butt, you can accomplish um, largely because we come from so much less. Um, We're not used to seeing all of these expensive cars parked and never being driven when the damn car can feed an entire village for a year. (laughs) Uh, These darn million dollar Lamborghinis. Um, But yeah, I was initially uh, born uh, in Jamaica, very, very poor situation. Uh, In fact, my mother had to leave me in Jamaica when I was two and she wasn't able to bring me up until um, she was able to join the U.S. Air Force. So I ended up growing up as an Air Force brat. Um, But when she came back to get me when I was eight, she found that my grandfather had been making me sleep uh, underneath uh, the house. So to this day, I'm deathly scared of uh, snakes and um, I had to be cleansed of worms and all of this stuff. But we're basically talking about abject poverty. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been perseverance and just been that never give up entrepreneurial spirit. If you believe in what you're doing and you know that it's right and you know that you can make money, um, um, yeah. And it know that it's going to benefit everyone. Then you just keep working hard at it. And that's been my drive. And that's what uh, most people seem to admire about me, that I'm going to buckle down, put my head down and keep working until we achieve the goal. And that's why one of the big reasons why I loved your story, like from day one. And that's a great segue into the next point of if you could have that opportunity to talk to yourself when you're 18 years old, talk to yourself when you're maybe 20, 25, somewhere in there, pick. What advice do you do you give that version of you on your path forward? Gosh, uh, basically, choose real estate instead of finance. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
the two oldest games in the world, right, is finance. Basically, the bankers figure out how to convince people to give them their real assets in exchange for paper <laughs> that has absolutely zero value. It's incredible. I wish I was a part of that scam. And one of the things that people don't realize is that we have to work for money. But the people that are wealthy, they create money. They push a button and they print money. They don't have to work for it. So I wanted to be a part of that scam. So I thought I'd go into finance. But I think a better route would have been real estate because... Uh, that's the scam that underpins finance. Um, and one of the reasons why um, we can literally get as much money as we need to fund this project, well, it has to make sense financially. Sure, sure. But we can get as much money we, as we need to fund this project because infrastructure projects are seen as a safe haven for billions of dollars. Um, So, yeah, we're not going to have any issues there, whether it ends up being 15, 20 billion or 25 billion to build this thing. Uh, We have people with very, very deep pockets interested. Like, okay, we could put a couple billion there once you've completed pre-feasibility, et cetera. And there's a hard asset that's backing it, to your point. There's a hard asset that's recapturable and recoupable. It's not a a series of software and a server and a Herman Miller chair. There's a physical object that can be taken and redeployed. Exactly. I think that makes sense. That's good advice. It's a a very financial system. Yeah, our financial system is largely based on leveraging those assets. Um, so yeah, I would say real estate and it also provides you a little bit more flexibility uh, in terms of pursuing your businesses. Um, because I was never going to be the nine to five corporate guy for 20 years. Yeah, And I talked to one of my partners, uh, Luis, sometimes, and he asked like, why is it so difficult for us? I'm like, Luis, because you're outside of the box. Yeah. Uh, if you had that nine to five corporate job, you'd have your house, you'd have your Lamborghini, and you'd have no issues. But because you're trying to help, you're trying to improve, you're trying to do something, you're existing outside the box, you run up against more issues. Um kind of akin to driving on a road versus driving off-road, you know? You're going in the uncharted path, and it's it's just the, the paradox of solving ambitious big problems. They have yeah. huge outsized impact, and it's not a smooth road to get there. Um, yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess so I'm real curious. Estate. Real estate. <laughs> this is. I, I love this question because we say this every podcast, but we get a, a new answer every time. Very few uh, repeats. But I am curious when you're not trying to solve the world's problems. What books are you reading? What podcasts are you listening to? Anything? Oh gosh. Yeah, I've kind of I, I I've tuned down on the books uh, lately. I used to read a lot, particularly a lot of uh, uh, sci-fi. Uh, One particular series, the Foreigner uh, series, 
had that bureaucratic example in it where all of the um, ruling families are vying for each other. But in the end, they find out that this one guy that was in charge of where everybody was positioned was manipulating them all. <laughs> so, yeah, I used to read a lot, but I've toned that down a, um, a, a bit now uh, and don't have as much time, etc. Podcast-wise, uh, logistics of logistics a lot. Uh, in preparing for this, I've listened to a number of your podcasts, uh, and gosh, uh, I'm very religious and very spiritual, but I don't go to church except for the church of Arsenal FC. And every week I listen to one or two, uh, uh, podcasts. Um, the primary one I listen to is, uh, uh, blog. Um, been listening to cool. that for about 20 years now, believe it or not. And man, if I met Andrew one day, I, I'd have to just give him a big check for <laughs> like uh, therapy and counseling. Then uh, he doesn't know how much he's done to just maintain my equilibrium. <laughs> you need to <laughs> have those outlets, how, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's amazing how little things like that can be the thing that keeps you all together, holds you back together. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we're going to root for Arsenal on your behalf. Um, I follow much. Milan AC more than Arsenal, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. We'll forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Byron, it was really, really great to hear your story. It was great having you on, hearing about the ups and downs, talking about the, uh, the darker sides of entrepreneurship that aren't always Jets and Lamborghinis. It can lead there. It doesn't always happen that way immediately. Twisty road with... Um, ambitious destinations, but it's really great. I love what you're doing. Love the opportunity to talk with you and hear more of your story. And we look forward to chatting with you in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you, Derek and Lauren, for having me on. Do love your podcasts and I hope to listen to many more. Thanks so much. Have a great day.